Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now, on to the next topic. Welcome back to Human Performance Outliers podcast. I have a guest here today that I'm really excited to have on. Uh, I'd meant to have him on a while ago and we just didn't get around to, to scheduling it, but um, this will be an exciting one. This is today we have a doctor, recently Dr. Jeff Burns. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Zach. Yeah, so um, I, think, I think we met back in maybe 2004. 15 or so at the Mad City 100K, 50K, where you had run, was it your first 50 kilometer race there? It was. It was my first, it was actually my first road race over a half marathon distance, I'd say. But yeah, it was my first jump into the ultra marathon world. Nice. So you went straight past the marathon, right into 50K, broke my course record there. And then I think it was the next year you went back and did the hundred K and broke my other course record there. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. Following in the footsteps of greatness. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it was, it was great to get to know you there and continue to continue to get to know you there. Um, you know, one thing I wanted, wanted to talk about today amongst a variety of other things is, uh, I, I wrote this blog post. You've actually come up in this podcast a couple of times because of this, but I wrote this blog post back in, I think, 2016 because I had sworn off dairy. I was convinced that dairy was not working well for me. I would wake up with like congestion if I ate more than a few servings of it. Um, and I, I, I even noticed, and this it's hard to tease this stuff out, but like I noticed that I thought like maybe there was some like slight knee pains that were related to it. If I'd eat a bunch of dairy, I'd wake up and my knees were a little sore. And I wrote this scathing blog post about dairy and how I'm cutting it out. And like probably a few months after that, uh, you're like, oh yeah, I read your, your, um, 
your blog post about dairy and I think you should try this. And you had told me to introduce some, uh, some fermented dairy sources in very small amounts and then gradually increase that. And eventually I'd be able to tolerate dairy again to the degree at which I had consumed it before. And I tried it and it worked. I'm just like, should I take that blog post down or do I leave it up? (laughs) Misguiding. Yeah. (laughs) Or just put an edit, like follow up. (laughs) Here's part two. Please read it as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Take, take this. Uh, the, it's funny because every once in a while I'll get a, a notification saying someone commented on it because they're asking a question about that and I'll, I'll correct them. I'll say, so full transparency is that experiment lasted about half a year until I talked to someone wiser than I, who gave me the, the down low on how to, how to reintroduce dairy properly. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you about that, do you know, um, or are you familiar with Dr. Uh, Bill Schindler by any chance? I'm not. So he's a, he's a, a PhD out in, um, I think, Washington University, if I remember correctly. And he does all sorts of cool things where I think he had a show on, I think it was National Geographic or Discovery for a while, where he would go and basically live with these different like primitive tribes. And he'd wa- his main goal was to watch what they ate and just kind of follow like, how did they come up with this nutrition program? How do they, or, like, are they thriving? Are they not? What can we tease out of it? So he's, uh, he's, um, been 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 with groups where they're eating primarily like animal-based stuff and there's ones where they're eating primarily plant-based stuff there's a tribe he went down in south america where they eat just like tons of potatoes which are normally poisonous ones but they they like bury them in these pits at like like two thousand pound like pits buried with like uh potatoes that they they let ferment there and they dip them in this like clay and that kind of neutralizes the toxins or something like that and it's just crazy to see or to hear him talk about just the different preparatory. Like he opened my eyes as well as you is just like, it's more about, it's less about this food is good or this food is bad. And it's more about how do you prepare it? So it's rendered usable by our digestive track. Yeah. And, and he's the cool thing that he said about it is like humans lack this, like um, this ability that other animals have where, you know, they have these, like these, these physical characteristics that can break down certain things that we can't you know, I mean, a cow is a perfect example of that, right? Like they can eat grass and turn that into something that is uh, nutritionally viable for humans. Whereas if we ate that, it wouldn't do anything for us other than give us a nasty stomach ache. But um, he said like, you know, what we need to do as humans is we need to kind of like take that process externally. So it's not in us, but if we prepare the food right, you can kind of do that externally. And that kind of was a little bit of a, a, a paradigm shift for me where I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, we're, we're using kind of our tools and our resources essentially to render certain nutrients digestible that maybe wouldn't have otherwise. And that's possibly part of the reason why we've been able to thrive on such a variety of different things over the course of human history. Yeah. And I think it's why we've been able to thrive. You see different cultures thriving on different diets all Mm -hmm. over the world, but also why flip that we have probably so much disease today because some of those just incredibly important like single steps in the preparation process can can wildly change if you consume that day in day out wildly cons- you know change the the nutritional status or you know bioavailability or digestibility of those like i mean bread is a fantastic example when you look at that when you know it's been eaten for tens of thousands of years and you know it's thought to give rise to modern civilization. But now we have, you know, issues where lots of people have different, whether it's allergies to, to wheat or to gluten or um, to some of the fermentable 
you know, resistant starches within the bread. Um, and all of that, you know, you look at what's happened in its simplest form. It was just, I mean, it was much like yogurt is wild fermentation. So you had bacteria and yeast um, breaking down these kind of like rough and tumble proteins and starches to then after a few days renders it into this awesome thing that you just give it some fire and it magic happens and it's this extremely nutritious thing. Then, you know, getting back to that idea of changing one tiny cog in that preparation process, flip that, take out the bacteria and isolate a strain of yeast to produce, to do that process much faster so you can make it more as well as give it like a pleasing texture or something like that. Um, so now we have these strains of industrial baker's yeast that is like infinitely less complex than these cultures of bacteria, you know, wild bacteria and yeast, um, bacteria, bacteria, bacteria and yeast. Um, but uh, yeah, and I mean, and the result is like, you know, for a lot of people, you know, bread can pose varying degrees of, of uh, digestibility challenges now, not to mention, um, you know, things that people think about with different enzymes, you know, within those, whether it's those that handle a phytic acid or something like that. So it's an incredibly complex nutritional thing that like ancient civilizations figured out how to make it well and do it well. And it persisted for a long time. And then we were like, hey, how can we scale this to millions of people and make it cheaper and faster? Change one tiny thing that's like, oh, this doesn't seem like it's that much worse. And it cuts the time down from, you know, in three days to uh, half a day. And now we can turn out so much more and it tastes sweeter and better. Um, then 50 years later, like all of a sudden you have like lots of problems cropping up. Yeah. And that's just one example, um, you know, Dairy, dairy could easily be another one. Um, but yeah, I think it's, 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 it's the two sides of the same coin that it's like, it's like you, we could be so healthy if we look anthropologically at how we eat anything. Whereas like flip it, the modern industrial complex has like perverted so many of those beautiful things. And that's what like, I, maybe your listeners will appreciate this, but my fundamental like food thesis that kind of guides all of my cooking and eating is make eat food that you could make yourself 200 years ago and that i think there are many there are several layers within that because that says you know essentially ingredients that you could come by you know in their essentially natural form pre-industrial revolution um as well as cooking methods, you know, pre-industrial revolution. I don't use microwaves. Microwaves suck um, just from, I mean, nutritional standpoint as well as like, well, I mean, nutritionally you could argue, but like quality-wise they just suck. Throw your microwave away. It's dumb. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so like just basic, just basic heating sources, you know, like just very simple heating, not blasting it with anything artificial. Um, again, the food being processed and handled in a, in a very simple way. Um, and I think that that's not, doesn't have to be, you know, overly restrictive or anything like that. But I think when you're cooking for yourself, just using that, you know, very simple heuristic is just a good check. And, um, you know, I think there are just so many modern things that have these little crutches along the way that make it so much easier to do. Um, 
that that yeah we kind of trip ourselves along the way um and, and cause issues but yeah the dairy the dairy is a great example of that it's funny because you know getting back to like industrial you know pre-industrial societies and whatnot and and that idea of you know i i think it's one of one of human the superpowers of humans is that we can we are omnivores from the standpoint that we can we have the ability to eat anything and and presumably thrive on it um you're you know like you're saying there are there are you can look at I mean, just looking at like the continent of Africa or, you know, any other place where we've had diversity of hunter-gatherer, like nomadic tribes. Um, uh, and you, you know, you have anywhere from like the Maasai who are essentially live on like 80% milk from their cows, <laughs> you know, whether it's like fermented in a calabash or, you know, drank fresh, they let the blood from, from the cows as well. And then they occasionally eat them. So pretty much sustained entirely on you know these these cows that they roam around with and flip that to the Hadza population who like thrive they're essentially honey hunters they're prime they're like they primarily sustain themselves off honey much like one tribe might go around and hunt animals they literally go around and hunt beehives and capture <laughs> that and that's their main source so it's like it's just we have we have this amazing superpower to be flexible in whatever we eat but on that on the flip side I think um, one of the things that facilitates that is, you know, obviously our microbiome um, and that in the case of like, you know, dairy with you in that specific instance, that was very much that it was like, you know, you go on a you know, course of antibiotics or something and you wipe that out. Our microbiome is, is in many ways like part of our superpower that it's like, it's like this whole globe that exists within us that we have to like populate with these species that can do what we want. Um, and if we, there are a lot of different ways to disrupt that, um, which can cause issues. But I think you can, again, flip that again. And it's empowering that much like our bodies and our fitness, it's, you know, it's presumably trainable to an extent that, you know, something like dairy, it's like, it can, can cause you lots of issues if you've kind of wiped it out and, you know, dysregulated that. But if you slowly incorporate and build it back up, you essentially culture yourself and selectively train those strains and, and grow them up to be robust within you. And then you can, you know, do it. It's again, it's like, I think of it as like our superpower, but it also much like our bodies, you know, aerobic engines or, you know, anaerobic systems, it has to be trained and nursed and, you know, um, yeah, when it gets injured, you have to rehab it correctly and bring it back on board. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to put it too, because I think like, I don't know if this was the, the catalyst for my particular experience, but I did have had to go on a round of antibiotics. And when was that? That was early 2016, I believe. I had, uh, I had like a, a, a failed root canal and they had to like put me on antibiotics for like two weeks. So maybe that's what drove... <laughs> drove the the overhaul oh. in my digestive system and stuff like I that. I would say that like that's a really really easy and probably likely hypothesis. Um because one of the interesting things with dairy specifically is like we as humans we are you know naturally programmed to shut off our lactase um per, you know uh our 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 own internal lactase production in our small intestine. And so that cycles out throughout our life. But what we can do is maintain cultures in our, in our 
you know, especially in our colon, um, and also to a lesser extent in the small intestine, um, of bacteria that can do that for us, um, that can either produce those enzymes or in a late stage handle the lactose themselves. Um, and so there's, I mean, there's actually been studies out there that have shown like people who have diagnosed lactose intolerance, like whether it's through a hydrogen breath test or something, um, diagnosed lactose intolerance, if you just dose dairy and slowly build it up over a couple of weeks, they can then tolerate it and handle it. Um, and it's that idea of, you know, you lose, we lose the ability to make those, those um, enzymes ourselves, but we can lean heavily on, you know, our microbial friends within us um, to do that. And so that's, you know, that's one of the, you see that a lot with, with people who become, I think it's a, it's a uh, relatively common indication of, you know, lactose intolerance following either antibiotics or a bad case of like gastroenteritis where you have like inflamed small intestine and damage the ability to make that, that, um, that enzyme. So, yeah, so it's just a matter of, I, I, you know, I had one of my, one of my best friends is a professional cyclist and we had the same conversation last year and he was like he had you know had been struggling with lactose and i can't remember if it was a doctor or nutritionist that he talked to and he and it was like a french or a spanish guy and he just was like point blank with him he's like no just drink a glass of milk with every meal you'll feel like shit for two weeks and then <laughs> three weeks you'll be great and you'll have no issues and mm -hmm. sure enough felt like shit for two weeks and then rolling after that so was he just about, using commercial dairy or did he have like a raw fermented type of setup? I think it was just commercial dairy. Just normal. Um, yeah. And, and it gets back to that idea of like, I mean, raw is great because that has just a wealth of microbial community, good microbial community within it. Um, and also like, you know, again, for people who kind of struggle with it, a, a good first stage is like yogurt or kefir. Um, that's kind of how I brought it back into my diet a while ago was, and I still do to this day, I have the same culture going, um, make my own kefir. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really the idea of the, you know, raw sources or, or yogurt or something like that. You can kind of help yourself along, but if you're okay with feeling like shit for a couple of weeks, you can just go <laughs> straight on half a glass of milk or a full glass of milk or something. Um, Go whole milk because like skim milk. Yeah. He's got time for that. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah. One thing, one thing I think would be an interesting question, I guess would be like, so if you had to go on a round of antibiotics, what would you do post in order to kind of put yourself in your best position going forward? Do you have like a strategy that you personally would follow as, as you start to introduce foods post the antibiotics? That's a great question because it's something I've thought about for a long time the last like I would say four or five years because um let's see five years ago and it was actually um not it was it was probably maybe six that would have been about six months after after we first met um prior in I think it was 2015 or maybe it was no, it was, it was before Mad City. It was, it was probably like four months before Mad City, that first one in 2015. So it was almost six years ago now. That winter, I had a staph infection in my foot um, and had to take like, and it, I mean, it was to the point where it had started going septic and like going, spreading throughout my body to the point where it was 
like actually extremely, I didn't even, I didn't realize at the time how dangerous it actually was um, to the point of like, I don't think the doctors were, uh, I think they were, they were rushing me along without scaring me. But so I never kind of knew like how serious it was, but it was only after we got it healed and under control that it was like, that could have killed you been yeah it could have killed you or you know could have lost that foot <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um like yeah it was crazy like antibiotic resistant bacteria are no joke those are like it's it's terrifying stuff anyways i had to take heavy antibiotics for that um and you know after that that was around the you know i would say through that year I, I hadn't really started to think a ton about this stuff. And it was only like a year later that I, I started diving, maybe six months later, started diving into the fermentation stuff and started thinking a lot more about kind of bacterial cultures within us. And then also like how fun it be to actually ferment other stuff. And this idea of making, using, using, you know, bacteria and yeast to kind of make things that are otherwise tricky for us to digest digestible. Um, and Ever since then, that was the last time, so almost six years ago, that I've taken, you know, certainly any antibiotics, but also any, really any, you know, any prescription drug of any kind. Um, and I think back now, it's, it's like this terror that I live with of like, man, what if I have to take antibiotics? Like all this work that I've done to like <laughs> take such, to nurse my microbiome along and all of these like foods and experiments. But it's also, I I flip that and find it, I have to remind myself that it's like, that's not some fragile thing that I've built up. I actually think it's one of the most, it's a, there, we should be empowered by our resiliency. Like humans, we are not as fragile as we think we are, or that we sometimes get terrified that we are. That is, we can totally break and rebuild. I've done that in so many different forms in my life, in so many different ways of completely breaking down and having to start from square one. And I really think if I took, if I had to take antibiotics right now, I would, I'd be, I just, I've got my kefir culture that I think is like, that. I, I mean, I eat it every day. I think I would, I would start with that. Um, uh, I mean, I would just ferment a lot of things and, and just, you know, mm-hmm. eat them. I think it, that can be, that can be a little dangerous because you can actually overload yourself on, bacteria and like fermentable things um and because you can actually i mean you can have immune responses to this stuff because it's i mean they are essentially foreign invaders in your body so there have been times when i've gone like really heavy on fermentation experiments that i get actual like you know i'll I'll start to get like really puffy skin my face will kind of like you know i don't want to say not swell up like an allergic reaction but i'll just be like puffy and phlegmy Mm -hmm. and and feel like that kind of like low grade sickness. Um, so then I'll like cut stuff out and yeah. So you kind of have to, it's, I mean, it's the same idea of, again, of training. It's, you couldn't, you couldn't be like, Oh, I'm running 50, 60 miles a week. This is great. I'm going to start running 200 miles a week because there are so many awesome trails around here. Yeah. Like you'll get hurt and mess, get messed up. But so getting back to the question of what I would do if I took antibiotics, I would start out by continuing to eat my kefir and maybe cycle in like other, you know, various forms of fermentation. But I think what it, what it gets back to is like, um, we, if, if you have kind of some staple fermented foods in your diet, I don't think you need 
you don't need to like overhaul the cultures. I think our body, much like much like a glass of milk, if you just raw milk, especially if you leave it out, it will eventually if you if you feed your body normal good food in normal good proportions, it will naturally like self optimize over a while. Um, you might it's nice to like nurse it along with you know like I said like yogurt or something like that. But you, I don't think you have to worry about thinking like well every single thing I eat I need to have some fermented form of that and I need to like do all I no I think I think if you eat the correct food in the correct proportions, your natural you know, biome will balance itself out. I think where people get into big trouble with antibiotics is if you have a course of antibiotics and then you start eating like really shitty food in, you know, incorrect amounts and at bad timings and all this stuff, then it becomes very easy to like get your, you know, your biome out of whack just because it's like there was nothing there. Now it has just completely unpredictable you know, influx, outflux of stuff to, to not optimize well, but it really mm-hmm. is, I think, you know, our bodies are rhythmic. So if you, if you consistently eat good food day in, day out, and you have a nice rhythm to it, like your, your biome will balance itself. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's, that's kind of what I've settled on with that is like five to take antibiotics. It would, it would be, it'd be a bummer, <laughs> but <laughs> But it'd also be like, again, like if it's in the case of like a staph infection or something, the alternative's way worse. Um, I would, that being said, I would push back um, on, I think, especially here in our hospital system, um, there's there's definitely a growing recognition of the previous tendency to like overprescribe, like to prophylactically prescribe antibiotics for a procedure. Um, like, I don't know what the case was like with a root canal or something like that, but there was a case for a long time where like surgeons were terrified of any sort of like antibiotic or any sort of bacterial infection in a procedure. So it was like, the risk is really low, but we're just going to prescribe antibiotics for this just in case. And now I think they've like done a pretty, or at least some hospital systems are doing a good job at moving that away because of the huge problem with um, uh, antibiotic resistance popping up. But um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing um, that is that has been on my mind recently too about that topic. I don't know if there are, there are other things that you want to talk about, but this is actually <laughs> something that a hypothesis I can test on you and your listeners. I don't know the I don't know the validity of this yet, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about. We see a lot of people like you know it's very common for people to take supplements now, um, you know, in in any form. I've been wondering a lot what the effect of those have. It's a reason why a few years ago I stopped taking mostly any supplements. Like I used to, for a long time, I took, you know, I'd religiously take like iron, iron supplements. Um, I started thinking, I was like, man, this is something that you're just kind of like this micronutrient, this micronutrient that you're macro dosing yourself with. Like, I wonder if this can whack out our biome. And I don't know if that has, I'm sure it's been studied in some context, but I don't, I don't think it has been, especially with regard to iron. But the reason like I, I got thinking about it with iron was like iron is incredibly, I mean, it's like rocket fuel for bacteria and more so other strains of bacteria. So that's like a lot of bacteria, you know, are iron sequestering, like in, in an iron rich environment, they take that and it's like, a necessary catalyst for a lot of their reactions. So I was thinking, I'm like, 
a lot of people have digestive troubles when they take iron supplements. There's an element of it just, you know, compounding the stool and like having that effect. But I wonder what the effect of like long-term iron supplementation is on our biome. It has to be like, it has to alter it. I, I would say, I, I don't know for, you know, for better or for worse, but I would suspect it could like really turn up the volume on certain strains, you know, versus others. Um, and maybe even like make it out of whack at certain points along the digestive system. Um, and so then, then that kind of extended to other like supplements. When I was thinking about it, I'm like, what if this is like, you know, so many people just not even thinking, take a multivitamin, you know, it's like, they're like, what's the harm? It's a multivitamin. Mm -hmm. And I would like, I, I would be very interested to, to say like, is there harm for, you know, our biome on that front because it gets back to like again kind of that governing hypothesis of eat or thesis of eat food you could make yourself 200 years ago and if you do that in again in correct proportion like you'll get the nutrients you need outside of vitamins and you know that kind of stuff um but yeah so that's that's another area that i'm like been thinking about a lot lately um and is why i've like shied away from iron supplementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's all really interesting because it's like we we don't know so much about it that it's like it stands to reason that we would be impacting something we don't know about <laughs> by, yeah. by introducing and, these things. Yeah, and probably one of the really tricky things is that like, I mean, our biome is like our fingerprint, you know, like everybody's got a different one. Not only does everybody have a different one, but everybody has a different one that's optimal for them. So it's like even studying it is really challenging or studying like changes of certain things. But I would definitely say that that uh, default that we have on so many things that we say like, I might as well do this because it doesn't seem to have any harm. That's one that I'm always like now in the back of my mind thinking, I'm like, oh, what about, what about the microbes? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. uh, there's some of them that, that are more deleteriously affected than others. I don't know, mm -hmm. um, but but again, it's like, it can be so complex, but I also think that like, it's beautifully simple to take care of it. Cause it's like, if you just, if you just do what seems like, using the word natural, it can be like a little, I don't know, like nebulous, but also like has different connotations. But it's like, if you just do the simplest thing possible and use like real ingredients and real foods, it will work itself out. And that's also, I think it's another one of the values I would say of eating, not just eating organic food and, and stuff like that, but trying to eat and shop locally, like from local farmers, because that is, you know, one of the, one of the huge advantages of eating, I think eating plants is not just the micronutrients within the plant, but when I take, you know, leaves of kale from a farmer, you know, that's a couple miles away, you know, grown on, you know, not just organic, you know, not just organically, but just completely, you know, old school agrarian agriculture. Um, that kale, like not only is nutritious from everything inside that leaf, but it also has a whole suite of, of microbes all over it, you know? And so if, if you routinely eat that day in, day out, you're inoculating yourself with the, not just, not just the fruit and the vegetables of the land, but also the life of the land. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's, you look at, you look at a lot of like, you know, agrarian, somewhat agrarian societies, and again, functioning on all sorts of different, you know, diets with 
you know, functioning well, presumably. And I think that's actually one of the important staples is like, they, they can eat whatever they want. And they also are eating the bacteria and the yeast that come with that. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, uh, you know, to go back to kind of what you were talking about a bit, uh, one thing that Dr. Bill Schindler said was just like what you said, it's like, you don't necessarily have to go like all in where like, I'm not touching a single dairy thing that's not fermented. He said, like, once you kind of get that robust bacteria built up, it's like, if you have the fermented dairy, um, you know, occasionally, and then you supplement that with some of the commercial products from time to time, you're going to feed off of like the, the, the rollover, or I guess the, the spillover of the. Yeah, definitely. Stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what I was getting at with like, like I, you know, I, I regularly eat, um, you know, like, you know, my yogurt every day that I make, um, but that, that enables me to like, you know, have ice cream every once in a while or have a cappuccino or something like that and not, mm -hmm. you know, not really have any ill effects. Um, that being said, like, I don't just, you know, my own eating habits, I don't do that often or regularly, but it's, but it's like, yeah, it gives you, it gives you, the, gives you the machinery to process variable inputs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool stuff to think about. And uh, it's just, it's just interesting to know that you're kind of like, you're, the, I guess the, the, or the optimistic way to look at it is like, if you have to go on antibiotics or something, you kind of like cleared the slate and you got this like clean slate to build from. Now the hard part is like, I guess it's probably easier, especially given our current food context system to sabotage that blank slate pretty easily. Yeah. But you also could build it up. So it's like the, the pessimistic way I guess to look at would be like, um, you've got, you, you, you clear the board, you ruined your civilization and now you have to start from scratch and rebuild from a population yeah. one. <laughs> but, and, and like you said, I think, I think people should also look at that as like, you know, feel empowered by it from the standpoint mm -hmm. of like, if, if you are, if you, if you have arrived at a point in your life where you are worried about that and that like you are, you are worried about, you know, the effect that antibiotics will have on you chances are you have a lot of great habits and you know, like you take good care of your body. So you should actually feel empowered that like that you are somebody who now, now if you carry over those great habits that you've built up, up to the point of those antibiotics, now you're again, like you said, rebuilding civilization with like a constitution that's like rock solid. Um, mm -hmm versus you know i think the people that probably come into issues with it um might be you know from the other side i guess the other thing to consider too is i would probably this just occurred to me i would probably like go very easy like thinking about foods that are traditionally like a little bit more um like digestive intensive i would be i would go lighter on those like i would probably start out with a relatively lower fiber diet um, I'd probably eat a lot of like soups and stews and stuff like that to like keep the health, the integrity and things moving along and then like build up, like think of like your, your fiber levels and your, you know, your fermented foods as kind of like your training that you just build up, build up, build up, build up. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of, I was going to say that as a kind of analogy would be like, if you get hurt or injured for two months and you lose a bunch of your fitness so you can look at that as like, well, geez, I'm going to be running like two minutes per mile slower when I start back up at a relative intensity. 
Or you could look at it as the amount of progress I'm going to see in the next like eight to 12 weeks is going to be like way greater than what I was able to chip away at like a relatively always fit um, state that you're in when you're not injured. And if you look at it like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this building process and actually like internalize some of these gains I make, even if they're starting from a relative deficit, it can be kind of cool to see those little wins along the way as you kind of build back up. So I think a lot of this perspective with that. Definitely. Cool. So um, we can definitely go back to food and stuff if we want as we get going here. But uh, um, I want to make sure we do hit on some stuff that your your uh, your expertise lays under. So like your PhD. I think if anyone's listening right now, they're just going to assume your PhD is in something with nutrition. But yeah. it's <laughs> no, no, that's the other thing. Disclaimer: I'm not a nutritionist. <laughs> probably you should have said that. that up front. No, but it's, it's fun to, it's fun to think but about. I that do, stuff. I do have two degrees in biomedical engineering. So I do understand microbiology and you know, mm-hmm. that decently well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, you're, you're a smart guy and you're a thoughtful person. So I think it's like, it's you, you're going to give a, a certain amount of due diligence to any topic I think you get interested in, um, which is why it's fun to talk to you about this stuff. But uh, one other thing I want to make sure we talk about since it's kind of fresh is uh, Joshua Chiptegee. He, um, yeah. I'm sure you watched Chep it. The guy. You, you the guy. My bad. Sorry about that. Um, just broke the five kilometer world record kind of on the back of breaking the five kilometer road record earlier in the year. And the reason, one of the reasons I want to talk about is because it's just so mind boggling me for, I think just even the average person to think about this is, you know, his time for five kilometers is almost exactly 60 seconds per 400 meter lap. So when you watch that race play out, it was just like, he was just hitting 60, 60, 60, 60. And then he got to those last two laps and it was just like 59 mid, 59 mid. He just like executed that thing perfectly. What were, what were, I'm sure you watched it live. If not, yeah. you watched it a couple times post, but what were your thoughts as I was kind of taking out and then you know, kind of, what are your thoughts about the performance as a whole afterwards? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was very much like you said, a, a perfect orchestration. And I, I would go even further to say it was, it was perfect. Not even, not even in how like metronomic it was of hitting the splits of like 60.4, 60.4, 60.4. It was, it was an even higher level of perfection because I think in order to set a record or to run an optimal time, um, you actually need to run the first like 10 to 20% marginally slower um and then you know and whether it's finish at the same pace or even speed up marginally more in the last little bit but i think that there is an element and there are some physiological things that go on underneath this um so you know the rise you both i mean your rise in heart rate and oxygen consumption and difference between those um there's an element of that but i think there's also just kind of a perceptual thing that goes on where it's like your body, like for him, the first lap running like 61, 61 is just as stressful as like 60, 60 for laps three and four. Um, Whereas had he gone 60, 60, 60, 60, I think he would have dug himself a hole deeper on the back end, deeper than those two seconds that he went faster, if that makes sense. and so I think that like, it's the idea where if, if you are going to, if you're going to run your optimal race, like the first 10% should be a little, just a tiny, tiny bit slower 
Um, and to go any faster than that, you know, I think you will pay exponentially greater on the back end. So when I was watching that, and when he went like 61, 61, I, I was thinking like, this, this is actually perfect. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he starts ratcheting it down and starts just rocking sixties. And I was like, this is, this is going to be too it. good. He's going to run 59 for his last one and, and break it perfectly. And sure enough, it was like, yeah. And so I, I watched him like, this is like, if, if I were to come up with a hypothetical pacing scheme, it's even better than running completely even splits. It's those nuanced differences on the beginning and the end that are just perfect. So yeah, so that was well done. But mm-hmm. I would say to that effect, it was artificially aided by that, you know, they had that wave light technology on the track, which is, I, it's like, <laughs> I was watching it. And I mean, I actually, I really do enjoy Joshua Cheptegei. Um, I think there are a lot of runners on the professional stage right now, especially at the elite, at the very top that I don't enjoy um, watching. Um, I think there there's big open questions for a lot of guys on drugs and sport, especially, I mean, especially in East Africa where the testing you know, the, the testing is essentially non-existent and kind of the economic disparities like just drive, you know, really incentivize bad behavior, um, which is, I mean, it's just a sad reality. So there are a lot of athletes on, you know, on the upper level that I kind of, I just don't enjoy watching the sport as much. And I mean, it's largely what sprints are across the globe (laughs) for me, um, sadly, but Joshua Cheptegei is one that I do. I have enjoyed watching his trajectory, but I would say that record was like, again, it's, it's like that, that wave light technology is, is almost amidst all the chatter of, of shoes and whatnot and how these, you know, the new advances in footwear, um, having a light on the inside of the track dictating the exact split that you can be running completely offloads any sort of um, uh, like uh, trying to think of the right word, like human actuation of that pace. Like, yes, you still have to run that speed, but you don't have to use any cognitive energy or stress, or there is just no part of your brain that is worried about um, making the engine go or like, you know, managing the cruise control. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is great for the pacers because I mean, in so many of these record attempts, and this actually blows my mind, this is like, to me, it's inexcusable, but it's the majority of the case. Like the pacers mess it up the majority of the time. Like they either get the pacing wrong or just like do something, like something happens with them. And I'm like, you have, you have one job (laughs) (laughs) on exact splits. Like you're getting paid well to do it. Um, so this takes that error out of the pacers, but then it also, when he has to go solo, he can follow it. And so I think that that is, it's certainly not, it doesn't necessarily like necessarily allow him to do anything that he doesn't have the engine to do. It just reduces any sort of possible variation that could happen. And I mean, variability is one of the beautiful things about human performance. Um, so I think there was like, that was certainly watching, watching this thing where he's in like, you know, these new spikes that certainly help him run a little bit faster in this like LED lighter on the inside of the track going. I'm like, oh my gosh, if a science fiction writer 
had written what track races would look like, you know, if George Orwell was writing like what track races would look like in 2020, this is what he would have came up with. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing we were missing is like robots as pacers. And maybe we're not that far away from that. On campus here, we have robots who can run pretty well. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it um, is funny. It is funny when you think about it because, like, when you the the psychological just approach to doing what you described, running slightly slower those first two laps, then ratcheting down by just margins of a second. So, like, almost indistinguishable to a normal mm-hmm. person. But for him, it can probably he can probably feel that like fraction of a second. Yeah. And just to remove that to the point where he's like, even if that the light is going at consistent pace the entire time, he must know like, okay, at two laps, I need to be like just behind it. Then I need to kind of close in on it, a touch those next couple. And then those last two laps, I'm going to gradually pass it. Once I pass it, just got to stay ahead of it. That's almost like having a sit and kick like opportunity without actually having to sit and kick because yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's like, yeah sit and kick on the record. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, so it, it takes away, cause like if you're going to break a world record, you kind of have to win. Right. So like you're going to be ahead of everybody at a certain mm-hmm. point in time. And if you can like, you know, a lot of these records, a lot, you know, you have to make a decision to go at a certain point. And if no one else goes with you, then you lose all that momentum you have with the pack. And if you have that light there that can trigger in your mind to be a pack, so to speak, then I think that that can kind of aid the psychological side of it a bit. Yeah, it takes it takes away the abstraction of running where so Mm -hmm. if you are running a world record, I think one of the most beautiful things about running a world record is that you are going where no human has gone before. Like that is so cool. Like that's like, you know, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like that is you are you are going into ter- you know physi- physiological territory that nobody's ever gone before you are an explorer right and and i think like that sort of like pacing structure takes away that abstraction which is that abstraction i think is what makes running actually one of the most beautiful sports from that standpoint of um i don't know if you read the essay that i wrote last year about the shoes training mm-hmm. souls for souls and part of the crux of it was, you know, the, the kind of underlying thesis was one of run, running's fundamental value propositions is this kind of like supernatural relationship that we have with other competitors, with, you know, past and future versions of ourselves. And it's that idea of conceptualizing something that was there or, you know, whether it's a, you know, a ghost of a competitor that, you know, you're running a world record there is the abstraction of that person who ran the record before you that you are trying to run faster than. And I think when you, when you, it, it's, it's so much harder if you don't have, if you don't have a physical like representation of what that is, because you are, it's truly on your imagination and then layer that on physical distress your imagination can become a very toxic, dark place. Like, you know, that's one of the challenges is overcoming those internal demons. Um, So that gets back to kind of what I was saying very early on of like, you just completely outsource all of, all of that psychological energy and, and anxiety that you have to deal with to be that explorer. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if Columbus had a GPS system, not as cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good point. 
Well, and, and no, it makes perfect sense to me because I know firsthand how like taxing it is mentally to be on like a short loop course and have all that access to information because you have to decide what to do with it. And for me, when I'm on a 400 meter track doing a hundred miles, like I want that access that part of, part of the reason you do it there. So you have that access to information, you can make micro adjustments, but you need to decide like what is a level that you can tolerate or before it just overloads. So like if I'm looking at my lap split every lap for 402 laps, then, you know, it's like at some point I might fatigue from that and start overthinking like fractions of a second, which is just going to make it harder to stay mentally focused in the back end. So oh, you- and, and I mean, I would further go on, like, even when you have feedback of every, I think even if you have, if you have, I would say digital versus analog feedback. So, so that wavelight technology, that is, that's relatively analog feedback because it's this continuous stream. Whereas mm-hmm. when you have digital feedback, which is, which is segmented, you know, for you every 400 meters, like that 400 meters between like the 400 meters between each piece of feedback is like a freaking like, especially late in the game can be like a cataclysmic valley of, you know, Canyon, like that might be like this bottomless pit that so much can happen even in that tiny window. That's Mm -hmm. like, because you have to, I mean, you have to continuously control and modulate your pace. And so like, I mean, yeah, even, even those like lifelines of 400 meter splits, I think it's like this entire world that exists within that lap that you have to navigate yourself, which is again, anybody who's run, I mean, whether it's an ultra marathon or done anything hard, it's like there are, I mean, 10 seconds can feel like a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think to, to have to manage that yourself and be the driver rather than having, you know, essentially a co-pilot dictating the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because the best way I found to describe it, especially to someone who hasn't done like a short loop ultra before is like, you find like you, you things can spiral in either direction so fast. And I mean, it almost happened to me at the Pettit Center in August. I got to around mile 40 and I had run a couple laps outside of the range I was looking for. And it was like the thought crossed my mind of like, well, maybe I don't have it today and I should just kind of, you know, do what I can with where I'm at and then circle the wagons later in the year and try another race. And fortunately, I like thought of it as like, okay, you can't hyper focus too much on these last two laps. Think about, you know, the 160 you just did in range, get back in range and at least try that out for a while before you can concede. And fortunately for me, I got back in range and it started spiraling in a more positive direction where I was hitting splits ahead of where I had planned when I kind of ran the math at mile 40. And, you know, then it starts spiraling in the right way. And you start kind of finding reasons to get to another realistic benchmark without overthinking every individual lap and just kind of running a little bit more in the moment, but still kind of spot checking occasionally so that you know that, okay, I'm going a little too fast or I'm going a little too slow or I'm right on and I need to just kind of keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. That's so interesting you say that. Cause that's essentially like you are, it's like you're sailing and you're kind of tacking, like you've got wind and the momentum. Um, and that's, that's really what it is, is like you are, you are like working with momentum shifts, you know? Um, and again, if you just have this kind of like metronome um, guiding you, there is, I mean, I guess that that's not, I don't want to totally take away from what he's done because there is, there is almost like meta momentum on top of that, where if like 
things start to go badly and that line starts to run away from you, that sucks. <laughs> it's yeah. like, mm-hmm. it becomes hard to come back off that. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there, I mean, there still is obvious challenge to it. I think what it does is it just, it maybe, um, it, it uh, attenuates the amplitude of those momentum shifts, right? Mm-hmm. So you can kind of like, instead of being like this, you can kind of like, yeah, level it off. Yeah. At the end of the day, he still basically ran a 5k four minute miling. So <laughs> it's yeah. so amazing. What banister that being said, <laughs> I will say, this is my hypothesis. I think that that will be broken quite soon. Really? Yeah. Do, within, do ever... So like that last record stood for 16 years, Yeah. which it was set at the height of the EPO era before the biological passport, before they had any way of t- taking, like testing those. Um, Again, I, I, I admittedly roll my eyes at the original record. Um, and so now I look at like what Cheptegei did and he had shoes that were certainly much more beneficial uh, and this, you know, pacing to kind of optimize the speed. And so I look at him like, it, it was like, I, I, don't, I don't have much faith in the original record. Um, and I would rather have Cheptegei have it than <laughs> than Bekele. But um, I don't know if I'm if that's kosher for me to say that. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it stands to reason. It's uh, you're you're kind of it, the Bekele era was you know a tough one to wrap your head around from a from a fairness standpoint. And it, the reality is, it probably is today to a degree too. But possibly in other areas as well, with the, like you said, the shoe technology and all that stuff. And yeah. All right, folks, Optimal Carnivore reached out to support the show and let you know about a product they are very excited about. Optimal Carnivore recognized that organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, but can often be difficult to prepare conveniently and hard to get when eating out or traveling. For this reason, Optimal Carnivore has created grass-fed organ complex and bone marrow complex. They do this by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-dry the organs, and encapsulate them into a convenient bovine gelatin capsule. They chose New Zealand because it is a pure source, a pristine land with rich soil, lush greenery, and one of the cleanest environments on earth. The products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. The grass-fed organ complex is a unique blend of nine different organs, a powerful combination including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and intestines. The bone marrow complex contains the same components as a home-cooked bone broth, perfect for people who are traveling or who do not have the time to make bone broth. All the nutrients and substances that your body uses to build, repair, and maintain your bones, teeth, and connective tissues. In an effort to add even more to these benefits, Optimal Carnivore plants one tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So go visit www.amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Links and the promo code can be found in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. For our listeners who aren't as like dialed into running and track and field and shoe technology in general, um, do you want to give us kind of a, just a quick 
briefing of like, what is this new shoe technology that's kind of like revolutionizing a lot of records and revolutionizing the way that, you know, race times are kind of coming out to in, in some of these records. I mean, we've seen so many at this point, there's the women's marathon record got reduced by, was it like two and a half minutes or something like that? It was it's down to two fourteen now from yeah, the Chicago marathon over a minute. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the record similar to this, the record before that was kind of head and, and shoulders above yeah, 17 years. Mm-hmm. It was so, like nobody had come even close. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it about these shoes? And obviously there's not, it's not the only reason these folks are running fast, but it is clearly a reason that is marginally reducing what they probably would have done otherwise had they wore something more traditional. Can you yeah. describe the kind of the mechanics of these shoes that are allowing these faster times? Yeah. So it, um, I mean, I've, I've like maybe your, your, most of your listeners have maybe heard of it in passing, but in, if they haven't in 2000, so the shoe was actually started making, started appearing on the feet of Nike athletes in 2016, um, early in the spring marathons. And then, um, at the Olymp famously at the Olympics or the Olympic trials, as well as the Olympics, um, and then it was officially commercial, commercially released in 2017 as the Nike Vaporfly. So that's what it's called. And that was released in 2017. And then, let's see, I think 2019, they released the second version of it, the Nike Vaporfly Next Percent. Or so the original one was the Nike Vaporfly 4%. Then they released another one in 2019. And then this year, they released a third iteration called the Alpha Fly. Um, but so this original shoe, they, they all, they all have similar, well, the two, the first two have similar ingredients. Okay. So it was this shoe, the Vaporfly, and it, it was different from conventional racing shoes in, in a few distinct ways. Um, so, you know, our normal racing shoes that we've, we've always, you know, we've had for since really since the sixties have been lightweight shoes with a bit of EVA foam. EVA is ethylene vinyl acetate. It's a, you know, cheap, light, relatively, you know, resilient soft shoe or soft foam. Um, that's easy to make into to foams for shoes. So that's persisted for decades and decades and decades. And the optimality for shoes used to just be like the lightest we can get it, you know, is possible. And then have just a tiny bit of cushioning to, you know, to soften your legs from the roads. So that was like the previous recipe for shoes optimization function was light as possible. 2017 comes along, or 2016 rather, but this Nike, and it was actually in 2015, Nike got its hands on this new foam called, it's called PIBA, polyether block amide. It's a new new compound. I guess I should start, I could go one step back too. In 2010, Adidas started um, working with boost foam and I can't remember if it came out in 2011 or 12 or 13, somewhere in the early 2010s, boost came out and boost is what's called a TPU thermoplastic polyurethane. Um, and this was better than EVA in terms of resiliency, which means energy return. So EVA shoes were returns about 60, 65% of the energy, um, you put into it. Um, the rest is lost as heat boost returns like 70, 75%. Um, so it was much better and anybody who's put a pair of boost shoes on knows it's like, whoa, this feels different. This is, you know, it's distinct can feel it, but boost was heavier. Um, so it was like kind of this meh trade-off with EVA. So it didn't really change the dial much, but yeah. So 
2015, Nike gets its hands on um, Piba foam, polyether block amide. Um, and it's the commercial name is Pbax. Pbax was actually made into um, like plastics um, and like rigid plates. So like Mizuno wave shoes have Pbax plates, plastic in them. Cause it's, again, it's you know resilient. It returns a lot of energy. So there's, um, I think it was originally used as a foam in aircraft carriers. So it was blown out into a foam and it's lighter than EVA. So whereas Boost was heavier, PBAX is lighter. So that's like one thumbs up from a running mm -hmm. side, but it's also way more resilient, which means it returns way more energy um, that you put into it. So it's lighter and returns more energy. So it's like, it costs less to carry and it gives back more with each foot stripe. So it's like, having your cake and eating it too in polymer form. Um, so Nike started working with this in the shoe. Um, it's tricky because it's also like really squishy. Like it feels like you're standing on a marshmallow. Um, and that, that actually could be maybe one of the benefits, but it makes it just that on its own, hard to run fast in. So Nike put a carbon fiber plate in it, um, which stiffens it up. And there was, when the shoe originally came out, there was a lot of hubbub around that plate. And I, I always saw it as kind of like a red herring and Nike was probably happy for everybody to like go on and on about, you know, the controversy of carbon fiber plates and shoes. Mm -hmm. um, because then you saw other companies come out and say like, oh no, we have a shoe with a carbon fiber plate, but it's like, it doesn't, it's that on its own can be, if architecturally designed right, can be mildly, moderately beneficial, um, but not to the degree that this shoe was. So when this shoe came out around the time it was commercially released, Nike commissioned a study from the University of Colorado. Um, it was a really, really well-designed study that compared it against other top marathon racing shoes from Nike and Adidas. And this was the big famous wow factor with the shoe is it improved running economy by 4%. And what that means is that it, for a given speed, it costs you 4% less energy to run when you're wearing this shoe compared to one of these other shoes. And depend how that translates to actual speed improvement varies from person to person, as well as the speed that you're running at. Um, and that being said, the running economy, you know, varies benefit, benefit varies from person to person. But anyways, it, you can run faster in it. And that, that speed performance benefit might be anywhere from, you know, two and a half, three 3% for fast marathoners to four to 5% for slower marathoners, maybe more. Um, so it's a big performance benefit in this shoe. Um, but anyways, we have these elements, sorry, I was getting, going off on tangents there. We have these elements, we have this, this super resilient, super light foam, um, and then this plate that goes through it and essentially stabilizes this super squishy foam and better coordinates the foot's mechanics as it moves through foot strike. Um, coupled that with, because this foam is so squishy and so resilient, you can put lots of it underneath the foot and you can then essentially store and release more strain energy because it's now functioning as a slightly longer spring um, and it's, it's much more compliant than EVA shoes or TPU shoes, which means that for a given load, for a given foot strike, it deforms a lot more, but because it's so resilient, it also gives it back. 
so it's all of these things, all of these complex factors essentially working together to create this super beneficial shoe. shoe. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I mean, since it came out, it's, I mean, it's it, the record boards have just blown up and in at all distances, you know, whether it was Joshua Cheptegei running 1251 on the streets of Monaco, ran 1251 for a 5k, no pacers, completely alone. Mm -hmm. Like that alone, I think that alone is like just as impressive as his. Yeah. This is one on the track. It's unbelievable. Um, I was going to ask you if you thought his road 5k record was better and the, the, the really kind of artistic thing about that that I loved was when that happened you shared a video that they had where there was nothing but just the camera on him yeah so you could just hear his foot strike no commentary could, no commentary <laughs> it was just like pure raw like physical like like effort going into this yeah. like slightly under 13 minute road 5k that just kind of seemed like he was he was just like a machine out there just popping yep. up 408 after 408 until he got to 5k <laughs> <laughs> yeah i watching that that's what i thought i'm like this is like performance art this is just so good like it's just yeah it was beautiful watching it but i think i think in many ways that's like maybe just as impressive as his uh um as his track one but you so, just yeah, cringe so when you have to take a turn though because it's like he's got this rhythm going and you don't get distracted yeah. by a commenter either so you can pay attention to the, the little nuances of that like oh he's got to go on a slight uphill or a slight turn yeah. or something like that you feel for him <laughs> oh man yeah but no so it's it's like you know you so we see the shoe is you know presumably quite beneficial for you know close to four minute miling all the way up to like you know the new york times did a really beautiful big data analysis on the second iteration of these shoes the next percent and it showed that the benefit was you know it was nicely stratified across speed groups that like people running under 220 for a marathon, you know, were benefiting by about 3% switching to the shoes. And those running over like four or four and a half hours is upwards of like five plus percent. Um, so across an enormous spectrum. And, you know, we saw it from, you know, Joshua Cheptegei blitzing, <laughs> blitzing 5k. And I think, I think Camille wore them in the 24 hour race, or at least most of her 24 hour race. Mm -hmm. Um, so they have a benefit of, I mean, not just reducing your running economy, but one thing that hasn't been studied is with them is the effect of fatigue, like, like leg fatigue. So I would say like economy benefit aside, like even if they didn't benefit economy at all, I think there could be a case to be made that they're beneficial, especially in longer distances, like the marathon, certainly ultras from the standpoint of, how much less work your muscles have to do to do some of that cushioning because the shoes are so compliant and resilient, your legs no longer have, I mean, they still have to do work to cushion, but it's lessened. So what you're seeing with marathons now too is, you know, not just the world records fall, you know, going down big time, both Kipchoge and Bekele running, you know, 201, 39 and 201.40. Um, but now when we look at major marathons like Boston and New York, interestingly, the times haven't changed much for those over the last few years, but now they've turned it, they've just turned into track races where these guys cruise at the same pace for 20 miles. And then they just run absurd finishing time. So all of those races now are, have come down to like sprint finishes and you're watching them finish these races and you're like, this is not what the end of a marathon looks like. Um, 
And so, I mean, I'm going to be very, I think, you know, I, we look at, we saw again, even on the ultra marathon side um, at Lake Saroma two years ago, when you had all those Japanese guys just run astounding times. And now Kazami broke the, you know, the long stand. I mean, he ran faster than Don Ritchie's track time, which was like 41 years old at the time for the hundred K. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that these shoes have, you know, a compounded benefit um, over that for sure. Um, so I think that that's one area that's going to be really interesting to see where, where um, studies come out on there. You know, if there's, if there's any benefit over the, you know, muscular damage and fatigue. Um, Nike actually did a study that they published at a conference. Um, it hasn't been in a peer reviewed journal yet, but it was at footwear biomechanics conference um, last year um, where they, they looked at runners who ran like the same tempo run route in these shoes, like three times a week for several weeks versus um, in the Pegasus, I think was like a control shoe. And like the, the vapor flies were certainly much better starting out, but there was no performance decrement like over the course of the couple of weeks in the, in the vapor fly. Whereas the people in the Pegasus slowly got worse and worse throughout the couple of weeks, um, like having to repeat that effort. So I think that that, that to me was like nice fodder for future investigations on, on how, that might affect leg fatigue um, mm-hmm. in longer races, especially at the end of marathons. And that to me is like, I don't know, there's like two sides of the coin there where it's like, well, we have this footwear now that's changing the game completely. It's like um, making it, it's, it's kind of changing the form of the sport. And there's a huge, I mean, there's, it's a debate in itself on whether or not that is, good or bad but it is that's that's what it is it is what it is it's changing it um and i think we can we can embrace the change and be excited by it or we can grumble and bang our fist but i think one of the big changes is it's going to change how the marathon is is no longer going to be kind of a a battle against destruction anymore i think it's going to be very you're gonna you've we've shifted the dial towards towards a like a more I don't know, speed race from the standpoint that you kind of like, it used to be that the marathon just shredded the upper gears. And, you know, even, even when guys were running 204, 205, whatever, um, there was still fighting that destruction at the end of the race and, and you could just completely lose it. And I think that tiny element has been, has been gone, which does then totally change, change it. Um, so that's just one element, not to mention the fact that they're, you know, faster now. And it's, yeah. you know, it's a different shoe that you kind of have to train in and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. It is interesting to think about. Cause I mean, we had Dave Scott on the show a couple episodes ago and, you know, he had all those iconic battles with Mark Allen and a couple of times when he won, he passed Mark Allen walking in the marathon at the end of the yeah. triathlon. It's like, oh, if, I think does Mark Allen have those shoes as he walk in that last 10 K. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. That's a, yeah, that's it. Exactly. And I think, the Ironman is going to be a really interesting place to see. Um, I mean, I don't, I, it's one, it's one of those things where I like, I could, I definitely, I love, no, I mean, my, my two favorite sports in the world are cycling and running, um, at least from a, you know, from a fan perspective. Um, and I just haven't followed the Ironman very closely, even though I think for all intents and purposes, I should love it. 
Maybe mm-hmm. I need to start following it closer, but I think yeah, too that many I'm, interests, Jeff, you can't be adding more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not enough time. Um, too many, too, too many exercisers out there to get excited about. Um, but, but no, I, I'd be very curious to go back and look at how use of that shoe has kind of pervaded that. Cause I mean, one of the, the things that's the thing that's complicated things so much in the last couple of years is all of this is, I mean, I think all of it has its own complications. I, ethically is not the right word, but like just in terms of the direction of the sport, where we want it to go and, and meaning what, you know, challenging the meaning of our performances. Um, there's a whole debate around that, but the whole other huge debate is the availability of this technology. Whereas if professional sport is built on a sponsorship model with brands, which I think is a stupid model to begin <laughs> to begin with. And I think that's actually one of the like silver linings of this is it could break that model. Um, but if it's built on that, then you have an availability issue. If one company is making this thing that is a, that is a huge advantage, it's, it no longer becomes an, I mean, it, it compromises the product. It compromises the integrity of the competition, or at least the, like, you know, what the competition is. It's no longer person against person. What I was getting to with, with um, Ironman and triathlons is I don't know what the sponsorship structures are, but I know a lot. I, I don't know how much Nike has its foot in a lot of those sponsorships. And I don't know, like, I know there've been a lot of like, uh, like non, I would say non-traditional elite running brands that sponsor triathletes. Like I remember seeing like K-Swiss used to have, mm-hmm. you know, some triathletes. I think on has a fair amount, um, which I mean, they're getting into professional running more now, but but so I wonder if there's an element of it, like of a certain amount of athletes, like having different sponsorship structures that it couldn't, you know, Nike just not being a big role. But I think the shoes are, the shoes are certainly a big enough advantage where, I mean, you like, if you are a contender to win a race and aren't going to win them because of those shoes, like it's actually probably a financial, financially a better move not even to have a shoe sponsor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think that that's a complicating factor probably for a lot of triathletes. I don't know. Um, I could imagine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you think back to like, you know, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, like if one of them has those shoes and the other one doesn't, that rivalry doesn't happen. And that's right. not cool, you know? Um, that's what like marathoning the last like five years has largely been like, in Eliud Kipchoge showcase. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think to one to one level, that's because he's great, he's a master of it, but it's also because there's been distinct competitions where he hasn't, especially early on in the, the release of these shoes, where his competitors didn't have them. And and so it's like, you know, like that like that's just not cool. I like that's not what the sport should be. Um, but then on the flip side, I also like am now this is, this is me with these shoes is I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so back and forth within myself on them mm-hmm. where it's like on the flip side, I'm like, well, it's on the athlete. If, if they want to be as good as they can be and then they have to like having the right equipment is part of that part of like, part of being a best, being the best athlete is knowing what's going to get you to the finish line the fastest. 
Um, and so it becomes your responsibility to, to do that and make that selection. So part of your talent as an athlete might be either recognizing the importance of that or also your, your willingness or your wanting it so badly that you're willing to sacrifice, you know, the comfort of a shoe sponsor to take that risk and, and go for it. And so like, you know, maybe that that's an element in there. Again, it's a complicating factor, but I think you can make, I can make that case as well. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly one of those things that it, yeah, it shook running up big time a couple of years ago. And it's still, we had this year. So I guess to kind of bring it all together, we had this year for your listeners, you know, like the crazy thing is that in 2017, Nike was completely upfront with all of the ingredients within this shoe. You know, the curvature on the plate had a patent to it. Um, and maybe some of the other manufacturing like elements of it, but by and large, this stiff plate through this incredible foam, the foam was not theirs. They licensed it from another company. Um, I mean, Reebok was already using the foam in another shoe as well. Um, but for three years, no companies came out with something similar. So it's like, I don't really have much sympathy for the mm-hmm. lack of competition. Cause I think it was a failure on, you know, a lot of other shoe companies. Um, So there's that element, but we finally this year started to see a couple companies come out with shoes. I'd say Mm -hmm. shoes that rival like the original Vaporfly, which Nike has now made several iterations on. But so we've seen companies kind of level up. That being said, I'm actually very curious to see what Adidas's response is. It looks looks very promising. I'd love to get my hands on a pair to compare them to the Nike ones um, or to see published studies on it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that to me looks of all the competitors seems like potentially the most promising comparison. Um, but all those other companies have, um, you know, started to release comparable products. And at the same time, earlier this year, world athletics finally came up with a set of regulations. Cause that was the thing that, um, again, to fill your listeners in that made this whole mess so complicated for a couple of years is world athletics had just terrible rules on shoes like just very nebulous i i always told people i'm like these read more like loopholes than actual rules (laughs) um they were essentially like shoes cannot be you know constructed so as to be advantageous um blah 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 there is nothing legally but no operational definitions of advantageous no anything um nothing to enforce so there's no, essentially no real rules like to, to guide what people should do on shoes. Um, so we, you know, I, with, with um, one of my colleagues wrote, wrote a paper, um, an editorial just calling for a simple regulation, like just regulate the thickness of shoes. Don't worry about coming up with complicated mechanical tests or any just, you know, regulations on plates or anything like this, like just regulate the geometry of a shoe it's essentially like saying the design space, like how much can this synthetic material extend past the foot? That's mm-hmm. it, you know? And then the idea, innovate within that. So mm-hmm. we have a definition of what a shoe is on the body, like how far off, you know, you it can go. My, my thought is like, if we're gonna put something on our foot, it might as well be as good as possible, but I also don't want it to be an open-ended, thing that we're just continually recycling these debates and questioning performances for years and years and years. So Mm -hmm. that was like, 
let's just come up with a simple geometric space and optimize within that. And World Athletics did that, but then they also added in, I would say some superfluous, well, they made it very generous. They made, they said 40 millimeters, which is quite thick for that's a shoe. That's massive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, that's 40 millimeters for a size eight and a half men's, US men's, um, European size 42, which is then when you scale that up to larger feet, that's like, you know, that's enormous. Um, so then they also added in other regulations, like really just complex and convoluted stipulations about plate sizes and plate, you know, types of plates and how many they can stack and like the geometry of them, which I, which I was hoping to avoid with a very simple, like relatively conservative midsole limitation. Because again, the smaller and smaller you have that geometry of the shoe, the less and less and less architectural additions like plates at strange angles and stuff like that can really make any sort of effective difference. Um, but it is what it is. I think it was a good step for them to actual ma actually make explicit rules. Um, so they have that. And then one thing that they added this summer now getting back to this world record was rules separating shoe thicknesses for track shoes versus road shoes. So road are 40 millimeters, track shoes are 25 millimeters. And the spikes that Joshua Cheptegei wore in that world record are um, essentially conceptually similar to the Vaporfly. It's that same ultra light, ultra light, ultra resilient, very compliant um, foam with, it's, uh, it's not carbon fiber plate, but it's a PBAX plate, rigid plastic plate going through it. So it's kind of that same, same formula of rigid plate, squishy foam, um, makes it, makes it a little bit better. So yeah, so it's going to make track races faster. Yeah, and again, so do you thinking know about really, I'll just finish really quick on that. Sure. I think, I think there's so many of our world records in track and field were drug aided. And so part of me looks at this as like, maybe I'd prefer it not to be like, you know, shoes, but it's also one of those things where like, I, I also don't, I don't think these spikes are like extreme aberrations. They're thicker than spikes used to be, but I set my track 10 K best on a pair of road racing flats, which is probably mm -hmm. about as thick as those shoes, those spikes were. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's, it's fine. It's just, it's human innovation on a different front. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I do actually kind of like though, that it's like, well, this will give us a chance to at least put some new names on these records that, maybe deserve it a little bit more than the old ones. Um, yeah. So it's a good chance to reset records that should be erased anyways. Well, and the hard part about that is just an enjoyment of the sport because it does seem like with track and field and a lot of the Olympic distances, like one of the big calling cards is that people want to see records get broken. They don't see that they lose interest. They like, yeah. they, they don't want to see like people coming out running like 10, 15, 20 seconds slower than what they did a decade ago. Um, regardless of whether they were doping, you know, before and not now. Yeah. So like with the shoe aid, you can almost kind of close the gap between natural and doped and yeah. then kind of progress again. And not oh, that's right. That's actually what it is. Like everybody keeps, it's funny. Everybody keeps talking about like, well, we've seen, you know, elite marathons get like, you know, maybe like two or 3% faster. Um, and I think it was, it was actually a statistician for world athletics um, or maybe he's done stuff with world athletics, a German guy produced this, like a, a nice controlled study that I can't remember what the number was, but it was like one and a half or 2% faster 
of major marathons in the last couple of years than in controlled years, you know, before the shoes. And I looked at that and I laughed. I'm like, yes, okay, these marathon, these shoes came out. But at the same time that these shoes came out, for the first time in, um, in Kenya, we have a WADA accredited lab to handle blood samples gets, re- gets opened in late 2018. So at the same time these shoes are rising, we're getting out of competition testing for the first time on mm-hmm. most of these East African um, elite marathoners. And so I'm like, well, how much of that was the shoes and how much of it was going down because suddenly we're becoming more strict with our, our drug testing. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's an offset that might be net gain. So it could, it could potentially confound the actual magnitude of benefit of the shoes otherwise. Um, but like you were saying, we have that, it's, I mean, it's funny that obsession with records is like that same unhealthy unhealthy obsession that like underlies our economy. It's like, it's an obsession with growth. Like mm-hmm. if it's not, if it's not better then it's worse. And that's just not, that's just not like, that's clearly not healthy because that defies the laws of thermodynamics eventually, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like you just, you can't continue creating, you know, without, without something, you know, coming back to bite you later. And I think that's what, with, with kind of that world record obsession in running, um, that's what we've gotten. And it's, it's just not healthy. And we were doing, I think prior to this, they were actually doing a really good job of not even putting world records up anymore on the screen. So like, you know how, when you watch a track race, you used to have in the, in the upper screen, like the time that they're running and what the world record is. They've now like what they started doing. And I think when Chepta guy did that, they didn't have the world record up there either. They put the world lead. So the, the year's best time, and mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. That's a way to like refocus that against like, let's not think about these world records anymore. Let's make a big deal out of if they've run the fastest time of the year that anybody's run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good way to refocus it. But I think you're right with the shoes. Is it, is it, is it, it's been oddly healthy for the sport because it's allowed us to like, I don't, well, I don't, I don't know if healthy is the right word because it could create unnatural expectations but it's allowed like a renewed fanfare on the sport of like injecting records back into it. So whether it was like, you know, like Kipchoge's 159 stunt, like that got more press than any legit, you know, certainly than his world record um, and, you know, any other race. And it's just because it's like, everybody wants to like see an amazing time and get excited about it. So it's almost this kind of like, like, entertainment doping (laughs) Mm -hmm. but again i get back to like i don't i don't mind seeing these records being rewritten because i didn't enjoy the you know the people in the first place (laughs) well the interesting thing too just to kind of fill in on what you were talking about too and you did kind of mention this to a degree is like i think a lot of people they don't always understand that uh when you have a shoe on especially when we're looking at professional runners you see, basically, if you look at like the Olympics, the Boston Marathon, any of these big races, the shoes, the guys and gals winning these races are, they don't exist in the marketplace yet. Like they're prototypes almost all the time. And, and now, now a little bit maybe different with the regulations and things like that. But a lot of times the athletes are wearing a product that is going to hit the marketplace in a year or so. It takes about a year and a half from kind of like, uh, even if I already have a shoe and I'm just going to build onto it. It's about an 18 month window before that first prototype gets made to by the time it ends up on the shelves in the shoe store. 
So if you have a company making a shoe that is you know, X percent better than everything else out there, you know, you can have athletes racing in that shoe at the expense of anyone else even having access to it, uh, barring getting a partnership with that specific brand. So like, I think the regulations going forward have to be, and, and they are to a degree. I think now you have to have it, you have to be able to sell it commercially before an athlete can wear it at a, for a record. Is that, is that accurate? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. So again, it's a little complicated and convoluted. They, they released the original records like, or so all of the regulations thus far are, they're calling them transitional rules until they like, I think essentially until the, after the Olympics, originally they released these in January and they put like, it has to hit the market to be used in the Olympics. It has to hit the market by April 30th. Mm -hmm. um, and then moving forward, I think is something like shoes to be used in competition after that have to be submitted to world athletics to be approved. And then they get now they just for the first time last week released a list of approved of shoes that brands have submitted that have been approved. Um, and moving forward, they're going to iron out the timelines of like when shoes have to be on the market and how long they have to be out and if they have to be submitted or not. Like if they're a prototype, they have to be submitted. Um, one of my motivations for proposing that midsole regulation or like the midsole height regulation with, with nothing else though, was actually preserving that um, ability to wear prototypes because I, I actually do think that's a really oddly beautiful part of the sport from the, from the idea of like, I think that there is an element of like, it's cool if your shoe company wants to make you a custom shoe. Like, I don't like that that's being prohibited now. Like, mm -hmm. like if you were with, you know, like if you were working with ultra, like to have the perfect shoe for your hundred mile race, like, I think that's cool if they want to make a custom Zach Bitter shoe, you know, like um, there's an old Japanese shoemaker um, uh, I think it was Hideaki Mimura. I think his last name was Mimura, but he famously made custom shoes for a bunch of like the top Japanese marathoners. And he always likened it to like the, the, um, samurai artisan swords master. It's like every mm -hmm. samurai has his unique sword. Like that's shoes for a runner. So I kind of like, I, one of my things with that midsole limitation, I'm like, I, just, I, if we have a midsole limitation that way, that way anybody can rock up on the line with whatever they've got, with whatever they want, with whatever custom shoe. And we don't have to worry about any of that, like, you know, sending them to world athletics, getting them approved, stuff like that. So there's a little bit of that, like custom engineering romance that's been lost for me um, with that. I do, but it gets back to that idea of that was contingent on a relatively conservative height limit now that you have a really loose one, like a pretty big one, you have a huge design space, literally and figuratively, to create different configurations that could be substantially more beneficial. Um, so there is an element of that, because I guess for if your listeners don't know, like that happened in the, like, the Olympic trials as well as the Olympics in 2016. These shoes, Nike had been developing them um, they, you know, they started work on them in 2015, I think. And they, the Olympic trials in this, you know, the, the essentially the early spring winter of, of 20, um, early 2016, a handful of Nike athletes were in these shoes and 
you know, like Galen Rupp made the team, Shalane Flanagan and Amy Craig made the team. Um, and Kara Goucher famously missed the team. She had just switched to um, Skechers. She's now with Ultra. Um, she, I think she was fourth. And, and by the amount that those shoes would have made, you know, a difference on getting on that team. Mm-hmm. So there was that. But then you look at the Olympics and, you know, the top three men in that race, um, uh, Eliud Kipchoge, um, uh, Felix, was it Felix Elisa? Um, mm-hmm. And then Galen Rupp, gold, silver, bronze. They're all in prototype versions of this shoe. None of the other Nike athletes in that men's race had these shoes. Um, moreover, Nike put the upper of the zoom streak on that shoe with the prototype Vaporfly midsole. So the upper looked like their conventional racing shoe, mm-hmm. but you know, the bottom obviously thicker and, um, yeah. So, so it's happened before. Um, again, I don't, I, it's, it sucks. Like we don't, that shouldn't have decided race results, but on the flip side, I, I also don't know, like, like if you're a shoe company that figures that out and the rules were as terribly written as they were. Yeah. It's working. You're not going to like, yeah. Like if ultra did that for you, like, you know, back then they like, it'd be like sweet, like way to go guys. Yeah. This is an awesome shoe. Like you wouldn't be thinking about that. Especially <laughs> if in front of my hundred mile record PR. Yeah. <laughs> you'd have, you'd have, you'd have run 103 miles in that time. Um, but, uh, Anyways, so, so it's happened and, and that's what the, the new rules moving forward are. Yeah, like you were saying a lot of times that people racing, racing in shoes are, you know, because the development, the life, the life cycle development, like you were saying of a shoe company is like, you know, it's an 18, 18 month development cycle usually. So it's like, if you start, if you're a shoe company, you start tooling around and making prototypes of a shoe that you, you've got runnable shoes like a year before they'll even hit the market, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like you're saying, a lot of times guys would be guys, gals would be racing in these shoes well before. And again, I want fair competition, but there's also like the, there's also the, like, I don't know, the shoe romance in me that loves like the idea of having custom shoes that I kind of wanted. I wanted to preserve, like, and that was what that recommendation was like very much this like con- compromise between space to innovate but also um, limited, limited, ex- limit, limited extent of engineering on performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, so now moving forward, it's, it sounds like they're moving to a model where shoe companies are going to have to have the shoe either been in the market for a set amount of time or be approved by World Athletics like personally or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's like you said, I think there's a lot of like kind of loop arounds where like when they say in the market, it's like, what, what does that mean? Did you sell a dozen? Oh, yeah. All those mm-hmm. all those companies who were like when World Athletics said, here's the rule, your shoe has to be out by April 30, 30th. So like what a handful of them did, like, a, I mean, Nike did this with the Alpha Fly. Adidas did it with their, you know, audio. I can't, I don't know the can't remember the name of the shoe. It's the Auto Zero. I, I, don't, I can't remember it's the Auto Zero Pro or something like that. Um, they put it as like you know 
a raffle online that's like you can put your name in and if you get selected to buy it you can buy it and so that's what and they chalk that up to being you know available to the public for sale because anybody can get in the raffle and buy it if they get selected Mm -hmm. but it's like how many people got selected to buy those shoes like yeah (laughs) one that presumably that's all you really need um maybe a couple hundred i don't know um but it's, it's nonsense there. Again, it gets back to like, I read it and I'm like, this sucks. This is like, this is just bad, like just, just bad regulation structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, it's overly complex in, in my, in, in my opinion. Um, and the more complex the make you make it, the more specific you have to make all of those little guidelines in order to be fair. So mm-hmm. like, if you want it to be available to everybody by a certain time, I want explicit regulations of what that means. Um, and so now they have to like come out and do all of that. And all of it's like avoiding that was the motivation to kind of propose just a very simple geometric constraint. Um, but eh. yeah, it's, unfortunately that's the world that, you know, we now have to exist with. Yeah, you you know, there's always the transitions. There's things like, you know, it, it there's like comparisons out there, and I think there's ones on either side where you look at like the suit they use for swimming, where they banned that eventually because it was essentially the same idea, where it made you more buoyant and it made you swim faster. Essentially, if you had the suit, so they said you can't do that in competition more. But then, if you look at cycling, I mean, imagine how much faster the bikes are that they're riding nowadays versus in the '80s. Um, yeah, all sorts of um, different things like that. But that being said there's also enormous limitation on those bikes. Um, like mm-hmm. yeah. the rule book on bike limitations is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the bikes actually, there was a period like in the nineties, I think even where the bikes were sometimes even faster than the ones now, um, <laughs> because they've, they've scaled back and really constrained the limitations on the bikes, um, now with the dimensions. And that's, you know, cause you, there are, there are many, many better ways to design a bike to go faster than what they do now. Um, but you just open a Pandora's box of complications. The more that, the more you allow engineering to play a role in performance, the more you bring in a host of interacting and complex challenges, whether it's, you know, it's not just avail. I mean, it's not just availability, um, of the product and the goods, which is one, you know, trouble. It's, it's also, it's also just that idea that then your engineering starts to play a bigger role in that performance. And if you want your sport to be like running, this is what I always say, running's fundamental value proposition is that it is human performance distilled. It is as simple as it gets. And so the more and more that a piece of engineering can play a role, the more it muddies that. And I think that that, you know, for some, it might be interesting, but for some, it might just disrupt the enjoyment. And what that could look like is the more and more complex that, you know, whether it's a bike or in cycling or footwear and shoes, the more complex that gets, the more specialized that equipment will become to a certain one certain task. So, you could get shoes that become more and more optimized for running in like a straight line. Um, but as soon as you start to turn some of the gains that you made in that, you know, straight line speed and whether it's stability or whatever, 
go out the window and at some point it becomes, you know, not beneficial. Like you might have that now where like a vapor fly might not be beneficial on a cross country course or something like mm, that. Yeah. Some cross country courses, it might be beneficial and that like further, you know, complicates it. <laughs> so and a so coin like, flip as you're deciding which tool well, to so bring that's out what it gets back to is once you get to a point where equipment selection can be the deciding factor, you know, for a lot of people, they might see that as, as an unhealthy step for the sport. Like you see that in skiing where it's like, choose the wrong wax and you go from podium to 20th place. Mm -hmm. um, and so like in getting back to like cycling, there are those like land speed record bikes that like you're sitting down and you're essentially in this like carbon fiber bullet shell. Those things could beat the pants off of any, you know, pro cycling bike if you're riding like a straight time trial but all of a sudden, once you have to start climbing, like it's, you know, the benefits go way out the window. And so it's like, if you went free for all in cycling, you could have a different bike for every single stage based on, you know, optimal geometries of a race. And moreover, you could have different, you know, bikes that you have unknown benefits, you know, to that certain stage based on whether it's wind pattern or weather. And then some person loses just because of this, like, you know, bike selection and, and I think there's an element of like, again, mastering your equipment to be part of the competition. But I think in my, it's my personal opinion, but I, I like a sport where that's minimized. Um, and I don't know, I think, I, I think a lot of runners do as well, but um, I don't know. That's again, we, our preference for that exists on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, my, my thought is uh, if they go forward with the increase in technology, I may have one of the last world records done in conventional shoes. <laughs> yeah. So I can, I can, I can lean on that going forward as the last person in the, in the, the old model. <laughs> yeah. Now that being said, um, you like setting the record on a track mm -hmm. versus a road carries some of some of the benefit that those shoes have not not to the extent of those shoes but because it's a slightly more compliant surface mm -hmm. that reduces the energy cost of running compared to pavement by a fractional amount being said if you're in the normal shoes in the dome um maybe you're looking at 11 hours <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know do you are you are you working with ultra to develop a uh a uh Peabacks based shoe right now. I'm I'm not working with them directly on that that specific model, but they are working on some things. I think in terms of trying to Good. get up to speed, which I think all brands probably will at, that have a stake in the game, so to speak. All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, Jiu Jitsu. 
And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Well, a couple, I have two last questions about this. Um, one is... Do you think the current regulations will stay at 40 or do you think they'll tighten those more? And then when specific to a track, since that's 25, do you see, like, I'm not, do you know, like how much they read into like the discipline? Because like 25 millimeters on a track in a pair of spikes is huge, but on a pair of normal trainers, which you're going to more likely see at an ultra marathon, 25 is very much moderate cushion for a, for a pair of just running shoes. So is this going to limit max cushion shoes on track ultras just because of this particular technology, regardless of the Peabody or not? Um, two thoughts on that. So your, fir- your first one, what was your first question? I could answer that really quick. Um, do you think they'll tighten the regulations down oh, further from that 40 um, millimeter? I, I, <laughs> I was like hoping they would a little bit. Like my, 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 thought, um, my thought when the regulations first came down is I was like, I was – I suspected they were going to be 40 millimeters um i was hoping they would be a little bit like if i got to set the rules i would have said probably like 30 millimeters Mm -hmm. um maybe even yeah 30s 30 would be fine 30 is still quite a bit larger than even most racing shoes used to be um and my thought my original hope was like if the olympics went forward and shoe companies hadn't really caught up yet it might really blow the issue up and there there may be some public pushback and like but i think now it's permeated like like all companies are making shoes like that now um and i i i think that the the 40 millimeters is there to stay i really hope that they in the future make a like um uh, a size-based height restriction. Like we didn't have the word count to go into that in our original editorial. Um, but I was hoping that would be a logical addition when you're writing this rule, but of course it wasn't. Um, like something like it's set at 40 millimeters for a, you know, eight and a half. But you should also set out what that looks like for a nine, nine and a half, 10, 10 and a half, you know? Um, you should set that scale, that length, length, height scale. Mm-hmm. So that could be one thing that's added, but I don't think it's going to get any tighter um, because they made it and essentially are now allowing people to set world records within it. I suspect it's that's here to stay. The only yeah. thing that might change is those, those availability rules are probably in play um, as well as uh, maybe some of the rules around plates I would, I really hope that they relax those because it's like, the thing is like, you don't like, I can go in, I can go on another rant on why making rules around plate structure is just dumb. Um, 
but uh but those maybe those will change as well um but so i think that's the 40 millimeters is probably here to stay um and then oh so then to your question on track disciplines so when i first read the rules i was scratching my head at that because it was like they had conflicting language throughout it where like part of it made it seem like it was any event on a track longer than 800 meters 25 millimeters but then they had some wording that said spiked shoes versus you know this applied to spiked yeah. shoes but then when they presented the table it said any shoe used in competition on a track so my when i first read it i was like this is not well written again but but seems like they are indicating it's only it's any shoe on a track hmm. and then they issued a clarification a few days later that confirmed that and said straight up yes this is any race on a track longer than 800 meters whether you're rearing flats or spikes it's 25 millimeters that's really interesting well so another piece to this saga sandre moon a norwegian long distance marathoner went after the hour world record like a year or a week a week after this came out and at the bottom of that table in these transitional rules that outlines those thicknesses, it says athletes not accustomed to wearing shoes of this thickness will have until December 1st to reach compliance. <laughs> so Sandre was like, well, I was planning on racing in the Vaporfly. I can't get these spikes shipped here in time. Um, I'm just going to wear the Vaporfly and we'll figure this out after. World Athletics sent out a message to like member federations, but didn't publish it that said the December 1st compliance piece was meant to be for athletes with health issues, specifically field events that have like different dimensions because the field events had had separate thickness rules. <laughs> and so it, like why they wouldn't put that in the original release for everybody is beyond me. But so Sandre runs the race, sets a European record and it doesn't get ratified because he's in the vapor fly and it's, it was, you know, 38 or whatever millimeters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So first issue came up with that. Yeah. Now to your question about ultra records, I don't think, I don't think anything longer than the, I think then the hour record is um, a world athletics um, ratified record on the track. So like track, I think track ultra records are under the, under the, like, under the like provision of whether it's the IAU or like, I don't think they're, they're subject to like, was your hundred mile world record, like a world athletics ratified thing? I don't think, I don't think they are. I think yeah, the only records right. that world athletics ratifies goes up to the one hour on the track. So I think mm -hmm. it's, I think on the track longer than the 800, it's like, it's like obviously the 1500 steeplechase, 3k, 5k, 10k and hour. I think mm -hmm. those are the only ones that are ratified by world athletics. The rest are now kind of under the provision of being like world bests. And then if it's a world record, it's under the guidance of the IAU. So my suspicion moving forward is the IAU might make like separate jurisdictions to say like, 
no, for ultra records, you can wear like thick racing flats. Mm-hmm. It'd be and kind of differentiated badass if they didn't. With, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean it would you, be crazy. You ran years in the solstice, right? Which is like, like 20 millimeters, 20 millimeters maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I, think I actually his... have, a, I've actually, I actually have a, um, when we, when the wall street journal came to do a piece on the, like the vapor fly regulation here and we sawed them in half, uh-huh. I had them saw a pair of my old solstices in half. Um, and I have those cause I was like, I wonder what this looks like from the cross section. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Very different than the vapor fly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, it really yeah. is. And I think, cause I mean, 25 millimeters is pretty standard, moderate cushion shoes. So like, yeah. Like, I mean, when you think of like, not now, I mean, brands like Hoka that historically were all max cushion shoes are now introducing shoes that are lower profile as well. But, you know, pretty much everything on their product line a few years ago would have been illegal to use on a track race if you were going to go like non-spike. Yeah. Which I guess at the Olympic distance and one hour stuff is, you know, a mute point because no one's showing up with a pair of max cushion trainers for you know, the Olympics at on a track. No, but your point's but, valid that the world's best, the world's best ultra marathoners are are doing that um and you know on a track mm-hmm. um i mean like we said like i think camille ran a good chunk of her 24 hour her track her desert solstice performance was in the vapor flies um which would now by the world athletics rule be illegal but like i said i think it's a different governing that, body yeah exactly mm-hmm. um yeah so yeah it's yeah, mind-boggling we'll that's actually one that's that's something that maybe Maybe we should bring this up. Um, I mean, I guess Camille is on the USATF Mountain Ultra Trail community. Um, but that's definitely something that they will probably come up at one of their meetings is like how to how to mm-hmm. um, merge USATF rules with, with the new world athletics ones. And I, I, get, I, like, I can't see anybody like opposing that. I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm... Like if people are going to be wearing these on the roads, like you should be able to wear them on a track for a long distance race. Yeah. And my, my guess is just knowing Camille and her husband, Connor, they're going to look into that stuff. I mean, she wore them at the world championships. So like they had to have asked, I would imagine had to have asked about that beforehand to make sure that she wasn't going to get DQ'd. And, you know, I mean, Oh, they're de- I mean, there definitely weren't any up until this year, there mm-hmm. weren't any regulations at That's all. That's true. Would have been like, after. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that, and that was one of my big criticisms. Is like yeah. now we have this window of time where it was like kind of unregulated, I guess. But you're gonna probably have to a degree. So, um, but yeah, I mean, imagine running 167 miles in 24 hours and finding out your record doesn't count. Like, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of happened to. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've been following like you know, some pro cyclists have been going after Everestine challenges. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the guys who he's a world tour pro rides for EF cycling team went after the, um, he got the record in, in a, this climb in Colorado, but it turned out that the something with his like GPS file, like where he was turning around was like his GPS measurement was slightly off compared to oh. the like, measurement that the official Everestine organization was using and it was off by a slight amount but he because he you know repped it like I don't know 30 40 50 plus times it added up to a substantial one so he finished the Everestine record and it was like seven and a half hours of climbing on your bike (laughs) something like that 
And like three days later, they're like, oh yeah, this was off by, you know, 40 or 50 meters. So you were way off the record or not way off, but like doesn't count. So he went back and did it the next weekend. <laughs> but I don't think with a 24 hour race, it's not going to be like, oh, shoes didn't count. Uh, go back in less good shoes and do it the next weekend. No, that would be awful. It's that actually like... happened. That happened in, um, oh, what was it? That's happened in the steeplechase before where people have run really good races and like one barrier was put at the wrong height. Oh. Um, yeah, and you don't, they can't count it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's, uh, this is going to fly over some of our listeners' heads, but it's kind of like the macro version of like doing a Strava segment and stopping like accidentally five feet before the finish, standing around and then walking past it and realizing you had the crown, but oh. you stood there for five <laughs> minutes and now your split is way up. <laughs> yeah. I actually just got on Strava for the first time um, like a month ago. Okay. So I've, I've now fully, I mean, I, I have known, uh, you know, sure. Strava mm-hmm. lingo and, and whatnot, but I haven't used it or like, you know, logged mm-hmm. my training on it. Um, just got on. So now I, I got my first, got my first uh, KOM nice last week it's a great feeling yeah (laughs) it can be good i mean it's cool the way to gamify it i guess especially now when we don't have a lot of events out there to train for you can like set up a workout around a few a few yeah and honestly for me for most of my runs like and maybe once i get fitter because one of my big things with it was like i i was i mean i largely haven't run run you know i've been pretty like structurally injured for two years and have now kind of finally gotten back, got knock on wood, but getting my legs under me. And I was starting kind of a, hopefully what will be a long sustained rebuild. And I was like, I just want to start, I want to document this all on Strava and then mm-hmm. just like get back into it. Um, and so I say, I, there have been a lot of very good runners who have come through Ann Arbor yeah. and a lot of, even my training partners and stuff are many levels above me. So a lot of these like, a lot of the KOMs on the segments that I would, that I do most of my training run on, I'm like, even in my best shape, I would probably not be able to get these. So I don't even worry about that. Yeah. I, I remember. Uh, which is a good problem, I guess. Maybe. When I first got on Strava, I was living, I was living in Madison. So like it was before a lot of the UW guys got started even using Strava or any GPX watches for the most part. And so I was like, Oh, this is cool. I'm, you know, I get it crowns here and there around campus and then it's like every now now those guys are probably starting to use Strava more regularly and it's like you just see them all kind of go down as these like D1 guys just go and blast every 400 meter um like like a Strava segment that's out there and probably do it on their easy day so (laughs) I was thinking about it though it does get back to that I mean wrapping it back to the beginning of the discussion um that idea of like you know racing ghosts Mm -hmm. and I think there is an element I, I've thought about how to incorporate that into like some of my workouts moving forward. And I was like, this would be fun to like, this could make it, especially cause I do so much of my training by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, like this could be a really fun, interesting way to like have like a workout day rather than being, you know, I'm going to do a 60 minute fart, like where I'm going to do three minutes on two minutes off, you know, mm-hmm. repeat that 12 times or something. Um, instead of doing that, just think like, I'm going to go run hard over all of these areas and try and like, 
you know, see what segments I can rack up or like just essentially just race segments for an hour or something. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, it's, it seems cool. Um, that being said, I also like our word of mouth leaderboards that we have on like the famous Ann Arbor runs that far predated, you know, Strava. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So. There's a little more allure there where it's like, you're like, well, back in, back in 95, so-and-so hit this route in X number and no one's gone faster since. <laughs> yeah. Brian Deemer still has the, the record on the Barton Tempo run here. Brian Deemer was the last American male, maybe one of the only American males to medal in the steeplechase in the, I think it was at the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. He's a U of M guy. But the Barton Tempo, it's like this six, super hilly six-mile tempo run that we have. I actually do it as like my last hard workout before ultras. Um, but Deemer, yeah, Deemer ran like 28 minutes on it. Um, and it's it's like it probably what you can run on the Barton Tempo, like roughly simulates. It's probably even a little bit slower than what you could run for a flat 10K. Um, and like, I don't think anybody's going to touch his – Barton tempo record and that was long before Strava yeah well you know what I was thinking what they should do is Strava should layer in like uh like just a like a a board that says like it's they call it like legends legends have it or something like that where it's like here's where we we think people have hit or we've documented word of mouth word of mouth yeah (laughs) kind of a fun maybe we should just start naming segments that like should name this the Barton tempo in parentheses 28 10 or whatever. Oh yeah, there you go. You could build, you could build it in. Yeah. Well, OG, you know, OGKOM 28. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting though. Like I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like cherry picking like certain segments where you just go and just do one all out. I like to do like, like you said, it's a lot of fun to structure like a fartlek workout where you have like three segments in, in this route and you know, like rather than kind of having it just be like, kind of, as you feel like going faster, you go faster. Mm-hmm. You just like, okay, I'm going to hit that segment and that segment and that segment. And then in between is like recovery for it. And then just see how many of them you can, uh, you can get, or if they're very stout, then see how far up on the board you can maybe get if it's within a, in a workout. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to, uh, I, cause one, I mean, one of my big things, like before like with Strava is like I'm, I'm like well there's one uh, there's one element that I don't like like having and I don't want to say having an audience for my training like yeah. I don't like mm-hmm. there is an element where I like to keep it I don't like to keep it private because I like to hide it but I like I like to not have to have there not be any sort of possibility for an observer effect like I could like I was always I was very fearful that like if I knew people were going to be seeing my training like I would, I, I would either, I would, there would be some sort of like meta analysis that I would be doing on it, like overthinking things or like, like, I don't, I don't think I'd fall into the trap of running too hard. Um, maybe I could, maybe I would. Um, but I then like now this time around, I'm like, I need to like get over that. Like, I, like, I think if it's like, it's just not like, yeah, just get, get over it, Jeff. Um, but then the other element of it was like, I was like, well, also know I'm super competitive and if there are these options to get these things like as much as I don't want to and want to like put myself above that there also is at the end of the day I don't like to lose at things and if I can like move up on if there's a leaderboard to be moved up on I want to move up on that leaderboard (laughs) and so I was very worried about like 
but I'm like, well, I could see this being, you know, again, can be like a, you know, harness it, use it mm-hmm. yeah. and shut it off, at, you know, when, when you need to, but it really is like, I started using it. I was like, this is actually a pretty awesome thing from a, from what it is, the idea of like, it, it reminds me a lot of it's funny. Like you can talk to me cause I'm like, I'm somebody who's like discovering Strava for the first time, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like everybody else has been using it for how, how long. So I'm probably like thinking all of these things that you guys realized a long time ago. Um, but I'm like, one of the things I was reflecting on, like, this kind of feels like, cause right now I just look at like what a lot of my old teammates are doing, like kind of keeping tabs on them. Like mm-hmm. this feels a lot like a locker room kind of yeah. like you come back and you're on a team and you finish and you're like, Oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I did sign. I did, you know, I did the joy loop. I did the, you know, I did bridges today. It's like, you just come in the locker room talking about what run you did. And I'm thinking like, this is kind of like a virtual version of that, which is like mm-hmm. kind of what the, what the like, platonic ideal of a uh, social network is kind of like back before Facebook had any advertisements or anything. And it was just like pictures and status updates where you would have events and like, you'd see what your friends are doing and like, you know, like mm-hmm. say what your favorite music is and your favorite books. And that was kind of like a way of showing off to people of like, Oh yeah, I like this book and this book and this book and these bands. Yeah. <laughs> and then it got invaded with like all the pages and stuff and went downhill and I'm looking at Strava and I'm like, that's kind of like what this is right now. This is like the, the, the golden years of a social network where it still has, it's going to be monetized and it's probably going to go downhill or something in a few years. Um, but right up until right that now, Strava was like, go Jeff, keep saying it, keep saying it. Yeah. <laughs> no. But it's, I mean, I think they also maybe could learn from other social networks. I do like that mm. they are like, moving towards a subscription model. Like I like that. I like that they're moving towards subscription rather than ad based. I think, I think moving towards like ad based is, is like, that's, that's the clunky gross way to go about it. Um, and it also kind of already has some nice sponsorship models baked in where like, whether it's something ultra is doing or like, I mean, or any shoe company or any, you know, cycling company, they have like a way of connecting with, the people using their product. So it's very natural way to like, not let the consumers and the users have any burden of pain for it, but letting, you know, letting it be this interface for, for brands that are commercial, you know, like better keeping tabs and interacting with their customers that they can be the ones flipping the bill for this interface. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think I look at it, it could be a good opportunity on that front. but no, as for now, at least for another month, year, I don't know how long it'll be, but it seems like a good, seems like a good, good social network. So yeah, no doubt. Continue to explore it. Awesome, Jeff. Well, I'm, I think uh, I've eaten up enough of your time today and I think we dissected a couple topics. It's a good reminder of me. Like I think going forward, if I had, when we have you back on, we'll pick a topic and assume we'll need an hour for that topic. And if we add a second one, we'll need another hour for that. (laughs) Or 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 we can, yeah, we can do like one topic. And then if on the off chance that there's, you know, additional time, you can just say like one word and we will then (laughs) spin off another two hours. No, it's, it's it's fine. It's uh, you know, we've had, I think I'm trying to think what the longest podcast we've done. And I know we've gone past two and a half hours at one point. Sometimes I'll split them in half. Sometimes I'll put them up um, depending on how, I don't want to make people wait for the second half if it if it lends itself to being 
one big episode. I think this one definitely has a single episode, long duration feel to it. So I'm looking forward to getting this one up. Also looking forward to having you back on down the road. Um, but before we leave, any spots you'd like the listeners to be able to look and find you? Uh, not Strava, right? But <laughs> <laughs> Not Strava, not much longer. I see that I forecast the demise of it. No, Strava, I'm, I'm fresh, young, green on Strava. So if you want to follow my training, I'm there. Um, Instagram and Twitter are both um, at Jeffrey Burns, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-B-U-R-N-S. And I would say I'm I'm like, I've been pulling away from, from those. I would say Twitter, Twitter is probably a good place to keep. I mean, both of them are good places to keep tabs on me. I kind of like go in anti-phase with them. Lately, I've been using less and less of, of Twitter because it's kind of like, it's a good avenue for me to like share ideas and connect, but it's also become this thing that, I mean, like so much social media, it's just like, it's like this dopamine hit that mm -hmm. just crushes my focus and productivity throughout the day. And it just causes, I don't know, it causes like strange anxiety that when I was finishing my dissertation this winter, writing my thesis, I just was like, I can't, I can't deal with social media anymore. I need to mm -hmm. like, I need, I need my brain operating on like all cylinders burning red hot all day. Can't have any of that. So I went off of it for a couple months and I felt like, like I was just baptized in waters of like happiness. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there are still a lot of like benefits to it. So all of that being said, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and you can see and get my somewhat, you know, inconsistent random thoughts on, on life and opinions and experiences. Um, Usually Instagram is where I'll post pictures of either food or research or running things. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> basically the, the, the three things that are my life, I guess. Um, so I, that's where I post that. And then, then Twitter is kind of where I'll, I do a lot of stuff on thoughts on, you know, running as well as some science reflection, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so those, and then Strava is my training. Perfect. And, and yeah. I'll, I'll tip the listeners off. If they go to your Instagram account to look for a conventional chicken egg, they probably won't find that, but they may find like an ostrich egg or something like that. So when you say ostrich food, egg, I'm, <laughs> I'm not crazy. We have emu eggs. There are emu, emu eggs, eggs on there. Maybe some goose <laughs> eggs. No, the emu egg was crazy. If, if, if any of your listeners are big egg eaters and they're sick of cracking, like, I know there are those bodybuilders out there that would eat like 12 eggs in one yeah. sitting or something like that. If any of your listeners are sick of cracking that many eggs at once, just find an emu farm. Like one egg is like a dozen and a half. It's the Jeez. size of like a small football. But yeah, there's some pictures on it. Um, I, I cooked it sous vide, um, like under a water bath. Uh -huh. And in order so as to not destroy it, I had to saw it open because the, the shell was so thick. So I had like a mini handsaw that I took to like carefully deconstruct it. <laughs> um, the other reason I did that was to, oh, that's why I to preserve half of it. Cause I'm like, I like half of this is going to be way more egg than I want or need, but yeah. I cannot eat it all in one setting. So I cut it in half. And it, yeah. So there's a picture of that on there. You <laughs> scroll through deep. Um, then the other thing, if, if any of your listeners are interested in, my, my website is just jeffreyburns.com and I have a list of some of my academic publications on there, but also some 
about once a year, <laughs> I'll write an essay on some random topic. And so those kind of like handful of essays are on there, like a race report, one on shoes and stuff. So they might find interest in that as well. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all good stuff. Uh, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. So any listeners who want to go check out what Jeff's up to, those links will be in the show notes, but otherwise, thanks again for coming on, Jeff. Absolutely. My pleasure, Zach. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.